Turn your Bible, if you would, to 1 John. It's printed for you in your program. We invite you to uh, stand as we hear this portion of God's Word read aloud. We're in chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. John says, under the inspiration of the Spirit, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, would you now, through your word, do that which only you can do? Would you point us to Jesus so that we might see him and him only? We pray these things in his name. Amen. Be seated. Somebody asked me one time when I felt called to ministry, and it was not too long after I came to a saving faith in Jesus. It was in some point in high school. In the church where I grew up, occasionally uh, there would be this thing called Youth Sunday. Anybody done one of these before? This is a catastrophically bad idea. Don't awe. You've all been there. (laughs) There's no reason to let teenagers run a worship service. I'm not sure that 40-year-olds should be able to run worship services. It was in this particular year that I was given the opportunity to preach. That used to be. I couldn't so much as stand up and say my name in front of a crowd of people. But something had happened and God had done a work in me. And brought me from death to life. The problem was, I was virtually blind to my own need of the gospel. 
And if you've ever experienced someone like that, or maybe you've been that person yourself, when you are blind to your own need of the gospel and how desperately you need Jesus to save you and how desperately you need Jesus to sustain you, all of a sudden it makes you a really awkward person to be around because you look at everyone else and you say, well, why can't you get your act together like I've gotten my act together? That's catastrophic enough for one Christian to operate that way in the world, but it is near toxicity for someone to stand in the pulpit with that attitude. And yet, nevertheless, here I go, standing in the pulpit. All that happened, I don't remember much of the sermon. I don't even know if I still have it in a file anywhere, but I remember this. I selected a text that I thought could be the the vehicle to say what I really wanted to say anyway. There was no comfort or hope of the gospel. It was all gotcha preaching. I thought of that this week as I read the account of another preacher, Maximus of Turin, preached in northern Italy. He served in this church sometime between the years of 390 and 423 A.D. And we actually have manuscripts of some of the sermons that he preached. Here's an excerpt from his third sermon. And his introduction is what was particularly notable to me. He began his sermon by saying this, Beloved brethren, I think that it is sufficient reproof to you that on the previous Sunday when I was about to depart, I dispensed no spiritual gifts to you from the sacred scriptures, but upbraided and accused you because of sin, dismissing you without any consoling preaching. That's a pretty humbling sermon introduction. Now, we don't have the previous sermon that he preached. But in this one, he tells of how he scolded his congregation for their sin and how he disciplined them by withholding Bible teaching, what he calls in another place the sacraments of the heavenly scripture. So he preached to them, but he preached only his words of rebuke and reproof. He gave them no consoling preaching. So why is it so incredibly important for us to hear the whole counsel of God's word? It's what we said in the beginning. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. God is love. Those things are not mutually exclusive characteristics of the Godhead, but they are, in fact, fundamental to his character, wherein God in his holiness cannot stand to look upon sin, and God in his love sent Jesus to stand in yours and my place. John came out of the gate swinging with this particular letter, did he not? There was no formal introduction, was there? There was no John, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. No, he went right into it. 
to this morning. It's almost as if John took a step back and said, gosh, I guess y'all need to know a little bit of my pastoral heart. Here's the big idea. Because God loves us, don't allow other loves to compete with his. So what I want to do for the next few minutes that we have together is I want to unpack that idea as we see it unfolded in this text. Because God loves us, don't allow other loves to compete with his. So John begins his writing here in verse 12. I'm writing you this, little children. And if you look at the way that it's structured, he's saying uh, five kind of unique ideas where they end up pairing up together. And he's saying it to what seems to be three groups of people, little children, young men, and fathers. So I have no idea why John broke it out this way. There are several things that I think are happening here. I don't think John is talking exclusively to men. I don't know why John is talking about young men, uh, little children, and, and old men. Lots of scholars have debated it. Every commentary that I read said a different thing about why that particular author thought that it was structured this way. So my expert opinion is to say, I don't know. Here's what I do know. If you bring apart, if you, if you take the promises that are unfolded in these several verses, but from verse 12 to verse 14, there are three promises that are held out. And there also seems to be a progression. So one of the things that we need to be aware of is the Christian life is a progression, right? There is a movement as we are becoming less and less and less like ourselves and more and more and more like Jesus, and I think that what we have to be aware of is that the, the truths that John uh, outlines here is if you lose these fundamental truths, you're going to instill doubt and potentially despair into your walk with Jesus because you're going to miss the heart of the gospel. Here's the first thing. The first thing is that our sins are forgiven. Our sins are forgiven. Look at verse 12. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven. Now, we all, in effect, know this, right? But the wound of Eden is such that when uh, life and its circumstances end up unfolding in a way that seems counter to what we think would be from the hand of a loving father, one of the doubts that can creep in is, I'm pretty sure my sins are forgiven, but maybe the last time I prayed a prayer of repentance, I didn't pray it the right way. It's kind of like when you uh, were in, in high school or college and you began thinking about that test that you were going to take and wondering if you had done your quiet times enough so that God would bless you with all the things that you had forgotten to study for that test. That not your experience? That was only mine? Fine. Uh, we'll talk about that later. 
we can get into the same mindset when we think about repentance and when we think about have I, have I asked God for forgiveness enough? That sows into our heart doubt that can lead you to despair when you think about, are my sins really forgiven? Look at the promise that John gives us. He says, I am writing this to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven. Why? Not because you said the prayer and not because God just looks past all of our sin. He says, I'm writing you this so that you would know that your sins are forgiven. Why? For his namesake. Our sins are not forgiven because of our goodness and glory before the face of God, but because of Jesus' goodness and glory before the face of God. That's how you know your sins are forgiven. Do you realize that even your most earnest prayer of repentance is not earnest enough? You need Jesus on your best days like you need him on your worst days. It is not because of what you have done, how earnestly you have prayer, have prayed, how earnestly you have sought God, or how terribly you have prayed, or how terribly you have sought God. Your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. The penalty of sin has been paid and the punishment has been laid upon Jesus. That's the first foundational thing that God, is say, that God is saying through John. is saying, know that you are loved because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Here's the second thing that we see in the text. The second thing that we see in the text is that because we are loved by God is that our status with God is family. Look at what he says in verses 13 in the first part and verses 14 in the first part. I'm writing you this Fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. And he says it again in verse 14. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. Listen, these new believers that John is writing to have come to faith in Jesus Christ. And they've come to know God as father. And so they strive. They strive towards holiness, not so that they would get um, they, so, that they, so that God would be their father or keep them in the family, but in gratitude that he has made them his children. They're reminded to live life out of his first love for them. Jad Packer says this in his book, Knowing God. He says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and his prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well. For everything that Christ taught Everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God the Father. That's the second truth. Our status with God is that we are a family. 
you do not have to wonder if you are somehow going to be written out of the family will. If you are in Jesus, God has embraced you, forgiven you, and brought you into his family. So our status is family. Here's the last thing that we see. We have strength and vitality in us. We have strength and vitality in us. Look again at verse 13. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. And I write to you, young men, in verse 14, because you are strong. And the word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the evil one. Now, in the New Testament, when the New Testament authors use that phrase, the word of God abides in you, they're not necessarily meaning that you have appropriately memorized scripture and meditate on it day and night. That's a great thing to do, by the way, but that's not what they mean. Paul uses this phrase in Ephesians, but then he uses a parallel phrase in Colossians and says something slightly different. In Ephesians, he says, the word of God dwells in you. And in Colossians, in the same phrase and the same construction, he says, the spirit of God dwells in you. It is not uncommon in the New Testament for the word of God abiding and the spirit of God abiding to be used interchangeably. So what this means is the Spirit of God is the Spirit of truth. When the Spirit comes into your life, it isn't just that there is now knowledge that you, that's not been there before, but there is, uh, there is actual life, there's actual vitality, there is union with Jesus that has never been there before, that is shaping, transforming, and changing us. So when John says that the Word of God abides in you, He's talking about this union that we have with Jesus. We are actually united to Christ, and as such, we are made partakers of the power of Jesus in his resurrection. No offense to Bible memory, but that's way more than Bible memory. That is actual union with the risen, reigning Jesus Christ. And again, this happens because you are loved by God. And John is saying that these three things, that our, our sins have been made, that our sins are forgiven, that we're now part of the family and that we are united with Christ and as such, Jesus dwells in us. These are foundational things that you must remember. You must know in order to progress in the Christian life. Because if you forget these things, if you lose sight of these things, you will all of a sudden instill doubt and despair because you've lost the very foundation of what it is that your faith is built on. Your sins have been forgiven, not because you deserve it, but because the sins that you have committed have been laid upon Jesus. Jesus came into the world and orphaned himself from the Father. He emptied himself. He came and humiliated himself so that we would have his standing as sons and daughters of the King. 
Jesus lost everything. Jesus lost the gaze of the Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He lost that on the cross so that we would have that in him. This is what is foundational. And John's saying, I'm writing you these things. Christian, I'm writing you these things so that you would know and you would understand and you would take heart and you would believe that you are loved by the Father. Because we've been known by God. This is the foundation. This is the way that we go and we tackle this next section of this letter. If you miss the truth that we just talked about, this next part doesn't make any sense. He says, what I'm saying is, don't allow other loves to compete. So remember, Verses 15 through 17, don't love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, love of the Father's not in him. That's pretty common in the Bible to hear exhortations from the prophets and the apostles to, to not love the world. The, the issue is, however, when you reduce God's good creation to being absolutely, in all circumstances, without a doubt, bad. That's not what the Bible teaches. God created the world and declared it to be good. It is okay as a Christian to be awed by a sunset. That is not bad. And that is not a misappropriation of the love of the world. Here's where the misappropriation comes. Because we were given art and music, drama and literature, nature, laughter, friendship, delicious meals. All these things were, were given to us as gifts from God to be enjoyed. But they were given to us to be enjoyed in a rightly ordered way. When the Bible talks about do not love the world, the Bible is talking about loving the, the values and the ways in which the world has disordered its loves, the way that the world has misappropriated the gracious and good hand of God. The way that material, the material world is used in such a way that it is in opposition to God and in opposition to the gospel. That's what it's talking about when it says don't love the world. When we are operating in a worldly way, we are taking the good things of God's creation and we are misusing them. As Larry Crabb says, we are, we are taking, uh, we're, we're allowing desires to be taken either out of balance or out of bounds, right? It's one of two ways that it can go. It's either taking something that isn't for you, right? Adam and Eve were given boundaries in the garden. All of this is yours except those two trees. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. We were given boundaries. 
In the same way, in God's goodness, we have been given boundaries. Husbands and wives are to have eyes only for their spouse. Children are to obey and honor their parents. We are to work hard and diligent for our employers. And on and on and on the list goes. This isn't because God loves us. This means because we are the creation. We have been given the proper balance and bounds for things. It doesn't mean that we have to forsake food. It's that we have to keep food in its proper place. Worldliness is a rejection of God's rule with its replacement being our own. When you think about worldliness, what it comes down to, this is what it is. It is a rejection of God's rule and with its replacement being our own. How, do you, how would you know? How would you know that you're being uh, particularly worldly? When you think about how you want to grow as a person, how you want to, um, how you want to proceed in living your life, what are the things that are animating your thoughts? Are you thinking about um, being more successful in your career? Acquiring more possessions for your home. Replacing that furniture that you got at a garage sale because it just looks like you got it at a garage sale. Or a trip that you're going to take with your family. What are the things that are animating what you're really striving for? Or is it a hope that you would grow in godliness? I'm not, and I'm not saying, by the way, that that's a binary thing, that it's one or the other. I'm saying, what's the, what's the finish line for you? What's the, what's the end game of the race? What are, you, what are you going to say, ah, okay, I've arrived. This is good. Is, that you would, is it that you would know Jesus and the power of his resurrection, and then through that, enjoy all of the success that you can enjoy in your career and all of the gifts that God has bountifully and generously given you? Or is it that I'm going to pursue these things as ends in themselves rather than means to enjoy Jesus? Do you see what I'm saying? Do you see the difference? Give me a Presbyterian amen. It's a head nod. Okay, thank you. This squeaky sermon this morning has been underwritten by Mountain Cedar, by the way, and three-year-olds. Whose approval do you crave? Whose good job do you really want to hear? Is it your parents? Is it your coworker? Is it your friends? Or is it God's? What's the finish line? What's the point? What's the target that you're shooting for? How do you know when it's enough? How do you know when you've arrived? When you find yourself daydreaming, what is it that you're really hoping to get? Or when you wake up from a nightmare, what's the thing that you're really afraid you almost lost? What's the finish line? What's the bottom that you're trying to avoid? For those of us who are Christians, the allure of the world, the allure of love disordered is a daily, seemingly constant battle. And where does it come from? See, that's the, 
That's the other thing that's gotten Christians messed up over the years, isn't it? Because on the one hand, uh, there is an outright renunciation, an outright rejection of all things that are in the world because we view the entire world as bad. That secular music is bad. How? There's only so many notes in a scale. How is box C better than Beethoven C? I don't understand. Here's the other thing. When you view the world as the corrupting influence, you've got another problem. Hey, hey, it wasn't me. I was corrupted by the world. No, no, no. Guys, come on. The corruption lies here, not out there. Come on now. It is not the world that causes the corruption. The corruption has been there all along. The world may give the occasion for corruption to show its face. But the devil didn't make you do it. The wicked, deceitful heart has always been there. That's what we're asking God by his grace and by his spirit to conquer and overcome and subdue. All that is in the world, John says, the desires of the flesh, that's internal. The desires of the eyes, that's internal. And the pride of life, that's internal. It's not the world, it's us. We're the ones that take good things and make them ultimate things. We're the ones that take desires and disorder them. We're the ones that take things, the good things that God has given and take them either out of balance or out of bounds. The world didn't make you do it. You wanted to do it. And he joined then Paul as he said, O wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? Your solution is not to go off and cloister yourself off from the world. Those wicked desires will still be there. They'll just find new ways to express themselves. What you don't need is safety from the world. You need salvation that only comes through Jesus who said, I have overcome the world. But he does give a list, right, of three disordered desires in the world. One of them is is physical cravings. It can sometimes be sexual, but not always. William Barclay gives this definition of um, what it means to talk about the, um, the desires of the flesh. He says, to be subject to the flesh's desire is to judge everything by purely material standards. It is to live a life dominated by the senses. It is to be gluttonous in food, overindulgent in luxury, slavish in pleasure, lustful and lax in morals, selfish in the use of possessions, extravagant in the gratification of material desires. The flesh's desire disregards the commandments of God, the judgment of God, the standards of God, and at the end, the very existence of God. It is desires that have been both taken out of balance and out of bounds. The second thing that John says is what we gaze on. The desires of the eyes. What we see through our eyes. When love is disordered, what we see becomes things not meant for us to serve, but rather things to serve us. 
The enemy wants us to see that all that's around us and dream about how it can serve us better. It could be the, the pursuits of our lives, the possessions that we have, or people that are around us. And the third one, perhaps the most pernicious one, the pride of life. The pride of life is simply this. It is self-dependence and self-glorification. Self-dependence and self-glorification. It is, it is viewing all that God has done and is doing and will do and ascribing all of those good things, those successes, those achievements as yours. I worked really hard and got to where I am today. Pride is a deep, deep, deep thing. It's at the root of the human heart. Rebecca DeYoung says, when we look at all the ways that we battle with indwelling sin, there comes at the end of it all the same familiar patterns. Our desires to provide for ourselves happiness via God's substitutes. It could be pleasure, approval, wealth, power, status. We are not willing to let God be in control. So we refuse to keep these goods in their place and accept them as gifts from his hand. Why do we refuse to see these things in their proper place? Why do we need God's substitutes? Because if it's a God substitute, I can control it. If it's God, I'm out of control. And if it's God, I can't dictate what the outcome will be. But if it's me, I can work hard day and night to try and control the outcome. So John says, all these things, desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, pride of life, all these things are in fact incompatible with the Father. It is not a both and. One is going to have preeminence in your heart. One is going to take over the, the trajectory of your life and push the other one aside. And then the second reason that John gives is in verse 17. And the world is passing away along with its desires. You've had the experience with food that's well past its expiration date, I'm sure. Where you pour a glass of milk and cottage cheese comes out in its place. John said, here's the thing. All the things that you're pursuing in the world as ends in themselves, all of them have an expiration date. He's saying that all the things in the world are, they're going to expire. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. It is only the king and the kingdom that is imperishable. Well, here's the thing. The good news is that while 
we are great sinners. We have for ourselves an even greater Savior. And what the gospel is about is not asking you to simply put off things and deny yourself things because somehow God is opposed to happiness and satisfaction. It's rather that the gospel is all about being delighted by things that can truly delight, being satisfied by things that can truly satisfy. That's what the gospel is about. It's not just to renounce things that are in the world, but have our loves redirected to something far more lovely and far more beautiful and far more satisfying than anything else this world could have or offer. When we view that as our goal, that as our finish line, everything else in the world falls in its proper place. You can enjoy these things as good gifts from the Father's hand. Insofar as they are pointing you back to him, to delight in him, As soon as the world draws your gaze from the Father and puts other things in his place, worldliness has crept in and there's something about the gospel we've forgotten. Your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Your standing is that you're sons and daughters of the king. And the strength that you have is the spirit of the living Christ dwelling in you. Because of that, receive all that God has given as good gifts from his hands, rightly ordered for your good and his glory.